This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is my guest, Anna Sale, who hosts the podcast Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios, the show about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. Anna, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, especially on um, day three of my attempt to once again wean myself from all nicotine products. <laughs> I've steeled myself for you to be in a really bad mood. I am certainly in several moods. I, I'm, I have been in more than one mood today. I can tell you that much. Um, but, you know, I would love to not die of mouth and lung cancers in the next immediacy. And also it's expensive and painful. But oh, my God. <laughs> You know, oh, my God. I think that's all I have to say about that is just one more time. Oh, my God. I need it so bad. It makes everything so much better. It's so bad for you. And it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was very well. I feel compassionate. I, I, as a currently pregnant person who's not drinking mm-hmm. during my pregnancy, I have been feeling it's like one thing to be pregnant and have all these new hormones. And then when you realize like, oh, I have just lost a, the one thing that was like the really pleasant thing that took the edge off every so often. And a glass of wine, mm-hmm. a gin and tonic in the summer. It sucks. I can certainly it's, relate to fluctuating hormones. It sucks yeah. to lose the thing that helps you take the edge off, yes. you know? Yes. Yeah. And I think there's like a degree to which you can sometimes move from really, really bad, unhealthy coping strategies to slightly less um, damaging ones. But at least for me, my brain is always looking for like, what's the thing I can have and hold on to? Like a little raccoon prince that's just my garbage that I get to have and like turn over and over again in my little scrabbly raccoon hands that's going to help me like numb out and not be a person. Mm. And so... um, letting go of nicotine and like chewing nicotine gum until my whole face hurts is sort of like I need to do something that allows me to feel a little bit like half of my brain is turned off and that I can do until I feel sick and that won't harm anyone and there's like you you hit a point of um, you have fewer and fewer options until you're like well I can eat bread until I pass out or I can watch Netflix for seven hours until my friends start calling you know what I mean like and I'll say, too, like, I got sober about a little over five years ago now. And, uh, you know, at least with that, you get help. Like, the nicotine stuff. I'm just like. Yeah, new friends. <laughs> yeah, and, like, yeah. that's often the one thing when like when you're getting sober, people are often like, hey, you're you're giving up a lot right now. Don't worry about smoking. And, like, you can really turn that into an extra five years of just like, <laughs> hey, I just got sober. And people are like, didn't you do that, like, in 2013? And I'm like, I need this. Anyways, congratulations on your pregnancy. Thank you. I keep picturing a little raccoon holding nicotine gum because that fits just so well into raccoon hands. Just turning it over and over again, the foil flashing every couple of seconds in the light, just like, mine, 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 mine. So with that attitude squarely in place, let's try to help some people with their problems. Let's do. And um, I'll go ahead and take our first letter. The subject is, what is my role in this? And it's uh, very much in keeping with your podcast theme. So, you know, get excited. Dear Prudence, about two years ago, my father was diagnosed with cancer, and I drove him to his chemo appointments out of a sense of duty. He was largely absent through my formative years, and I have a lot of complicated feelings about our relationship. I'm the youngest of three and was basically the only minor at that point who was forced into visitation. I often felt like a pawn used to manipulate my mother. I'm now in my 30s and a parent myself. I don't allow my kids much time with him. I don't want them to go through the same disappointment. Also, my father doesn't use any form of social media, email, or text. The only way we ever speak is over the phone or in person. I suppose I expected him to rise to the occasion and make a larger effort after he was in remission. He didn't. I let it go and didn't really care. He then canceled on my daughter's birthday party and said that he would come see us later that week. He didn't. 
A month later, he called me for days on end about an upcoming family reunion. I told him I wouldn't be attending. I apologized if I seemed cold, but that I wasn't going to the event. Now that his cancer is back, I feel forced to care. I feel obligated to help him go to appointments and to navigate the health care system as his insurance has lapsed. I've often felt like the more mature one in my relationship with him. What should I do? What should I offer? And what attitude should I take on to my absent parent? I can't be rude or aloof. It's not in my nature, especially to a family member. But how do I stop myself from being hurt again? Ugh. I feel like this is a tough one. I, I agree. Uh, I also feel like this is tough. I think the end question, how do I stop myself from being hurt again, um, that's not an objective that you're going to be able to successfully navigate, I think. Uh, he will disappoint you, or if his cancer is very serious, he may die. Um, so not being hurt is not an option in this scenario. Um, what I what I do think is interesting is how the writer talked about the sense of duty being the thing that motivated her the first time around and now trying to redefine what is my sense of duty in this moment. And the thing I just kept thinking about was, like, if 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 should, what I should do to be a good daughter or is, is the motivator. Like, there's no – you're just going to get trapped in resentment, especially if you have obligations of the family of your own that you're raising um, – but I, I think it's a question of like, what am I? What what do I need to do for myself to feel like I've done enough for my dad? Mm. I think, and it's you know, she also has two other siblings that we don't know what their role is in helping him navigate the healthcare system and appointments. But if it it kind of sounds like, given that the older two were not forced into visitation, they don't even have that sense of obligation, and they're sort of checked out largely. Is my guess. Yeah. Which says to me, like, I don't know, it seems like an opportunity maybe to say to your siblings, I need a little bit of help here. If they have the same dad, if they have the same, they all maybe have their different relationships with him. But um, it seems like a lot to take on uh, all on your own when you're not, it seems there's no warmth um, in the sense of what you are doing by caregiving for your father. And I think all of us have complicated webs of obligation and tenderness and how we care for our families. But um, I just feel like I wanted to know, like, from this writer, like, what, if your dad dies, for example, like, and you had have come to a decision, you know what, I can't, I can't be the one person being his advocate in the healthcare system. I can't be the one person getting him to appointments, like, and finding a way at peace with that decision. I think that could be a fine decision. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, if that's not how she or he thinks of himself, um, you know, I think it's, that's what I, it's like, what do you, how to get past the sense of like, I'm doing this out of duty and I'm, I'm, this is how I feel like I, for me, how I want to treat my father. Right. And there's that sort of question of like, I can't be rude or aloof, which, um, you know, for, uh, um, first of all, it's not rude to you know, Set not boundaries. drop everything to <laughs> right. be your parents' like caregiver, especially when you don't have much of a relationship. Um, and you don't have to be aloof in order to set boundaries. So I worry a little bit that that sentence is sort of like, if I have my father in my life at all, I have to do whatever he wants um, or get roped into this same cycle of setting up expectations only to not meet them. So I don't want to be like hard on the letter writer, but I just, you know, I encourage you not to think of this as I can't go against my own nature. Therefore, I can't set limits with my father. Those are choices that you can make, not the type of person that you are or aren't. Um, so, yeah, I think to kind of think through um, what am I capable of right now? What can I take on? What's the absolute bare minimum that I'm comfortable doing? And then maybe even knock that one down a little bit. Um, you know, it's one thing, I think, to uh, try to figure out how to help him, um, like, re-up his insurance um and even that i think you could um like just get him help finding the phone number and say like this is the number that you need to call um about getting your insurance you know renewed good luck like um i, I think that would actually be really really fair and kind and you don't have to do that for him 
Um, and the same thing with driving him, especially since you don't know like how long this particular bout will be. Um, I don't know how much that would cut into the time that you could spend with your own family, but I think mostly just to be honest. And so to say to your dad, like, I will not be able to drive you to your chemo appointments. You're going to need to make different arrangements this time would be a completely fair thing to say. And that doesn't make you cruel or aloof or rude. Um, that just acknowledges that you cannot drop everything in your life um, just because your father has not made any plans. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that the expectation the first go around was sort of like, my father will see how much I'm doing to to help and it will change our relationship and he will treat me differently. And I think having gone through this the first time, like going in this time, it's knowing like whatever you do, you are not going to earn him changing his behavior and treating your family and your time with more respect or more attention than what you've uh, the what what you've seemed like you've been craving. So right. if it's not going to change him, like what are you willing to do? Yeah, and that's not to say by the way, if you decide I don't think my father's likely to change, um I do want to continue to set limits on how often we see one another or talk socially. Um but as long as he has cancer, I want to at least be one of the people who sometimes drives him to chemo, that's that's absolutely understandable. That does not mean you're not growing. That's not like in order to be a like fully self-actualized person, you have to say, you know, fuck off, dad, drive yourself to chemo. Um, absolutely, if you've kind of taken stock of yourself and you think, in some ways I know this will be painful, in some ways I know that this will be difficult for me, it's also just really important to me that I be the one to, to offer my dad these rides. You can totally do that. Um, but I think ask yourself first, you know, what will I be expecting? How will I take care of myself before and after? How will I give myself permission to opt out if it becomes too much for me? Um, I, I think to just really think, again, like to have your kind of guiding principle here be, what's my bare minimum? And just do that, you know. Um, in some ways, this person is your father, and in a lot of ways, he kind of isn't. Um, he has kind of dipped in and out of your life. Um, he has instrumentalized you. Um, and so I, I understand the kind of complicated sense of, I owe him something. I don't really know what it is. I know he doesn't feel any reciprocal sense of duty towards me, and that's painful. Um, so I don't have like an answer of like, drive him exactly 40% of the time, but never see him outside of that or spend three hours on the phone getting his insurance back on. Um, and then, you know, divest yourself of any relationship with him. I think maybe even just sitting down and writing out of like, you know, What's my ideal relationship with my father? What do I think is the most likely future relationship with my father? Um, what are some things that I do have control over that I can do, even if he doesn't offer me the kind of respect and care I think I deserve? Um, what are things that I can say no to? What are things I want to say no to? Um, who are people in my life that I can turn to for like support and help um, as I go through the prospect of losing him to cancer, um, despite not having a super close relationship and just getting a sense of like, what's my worst case scenario? What's my best case scenario? What do I think I might be likelier to regret? Would it be um, putting my whole life on hold to attend to him and get nothing back? Um, would it be something else? Um, and, and then you'll get, I think, at least a strong sense of what are my values here? Um, and good luck. This just sounds difficult. It's it's hard enough when a family member gets cancer. It's especially hard when that relationship is already fraught to begin with. Um, and I'm just really sorry. All right. So sticking with the theme of difficult family members, but but f shifting the focus to siblings and children. Uh, this Another this difficult one's question. All you. Yeah. Hard one. Subject, Rosemary's baby. Dear Prudence. My older sister, Beth, in quotes, has a young daughter, Anne, also in quotes, who is sweet but barely parented. My sister is a single mother and has managed poorly. She does not work and relies completely on my parents for support. She explicitly told me while pregnant that she did so to trap the, quote, love of her life and get him to leave his wife. He didn't. She cut out everyone who told her this wouldn't work, including me, for a while. I never thought I'd meet my niece. Since Anne's birth, Beth has been distant and sometimes even neglectful. Last year, I stayed with my parents for a week while recovering from an illness, and each day I saw my niece. She had on the same clothes, matted hair, and a dirty diaper when she arrived in the morning. When I spoke to my mother, she said this was common, and when pressed, Beth responds by yelling and keeping Anne away. So my parents let it continue to happen for fear of the alternative. Anne acts out to get Beth's attention, but Beth would rather play on her phone. 
My parents are heavily involved in Anne's upbringing, and I fear that what would happen if they weren't. Still, my mother insists Beth is a good mom because she loves Anne, and Anne obviously loves her mom. I respond with actions Beth takes that are not loving but neglectful and damaging, and also point out that my own former abuser insisted he loved me too. I'm concerned about the coming holidays. My partner and I do what we can when we're around. We read with her, play, sing, run around, etc. But it's exhausting and temporary, and no matter how much attention she gets from others, of course Anne would rather have attention from her mother. My parents have pushed Beth to get help for years, but she refuses and has even mocked me for being in therapy. How do I approach the coming influx of family time, especially without my partner, who will spend the holidays with their own family? This time of year usually ends in fights and tears when I point out what is obviously wrong, and I don't want to repeat that cycle again. I think one of the most difficult kinds of letters I receive, just for me, are ones where somebody is parenting in a way that is, like, abusive or neglectful or both, but to such an extent that it kind of feels like it doesn't seem like state intervention is justified and they're like already real turned off to hearing any sort of input so that it's sort of like, what options do you have? Like, I don't think that this is necessarily a little girl who'd be better off in foster care, but this just sounds bleak. Yeah. Um, or, or bleak with moments of like grandmotherly love and affection and like some nice visits from from aunts. But it just feels rough to think like. I don't I don't have a, like a great long term solution for this. No, I mean, I the thing that I kept thinking was um, th- the the moment about it feels temporary when we're there giving her temporary joys, reading with her play, saying run around um, and that the fights usually the visits usually end in fights and tears when the writer points out what is obviously wrong Um and I, I think that's what makes that we're hearing the, from the point of view of someone who seems to drop in to mm-hmm. this arrangement um, between the other sister and the parents. Um, and it sounds like there is some history of uh, the writer feeling like the sister doesn't make great choices in her relationships um, and uh, and the writer kind of being able to see abusive dynamics um, given the writer's own history but I, I just kept thinking, like, you know what? I don't know if it's the role of the of the sister who's coming home for the holidays to point out all the things that are not working correctly in this child's life. Um, I feel like that's a that's just not something that a conversation that that you can start. That's not your role. And so, um, to me, I just kept thinking, like, what what does this child need to know? This child needs to know that the world is a safe place and there are people who love her and she feels that from her grandparents. She feels that from her mom in ways that might not be the best or the most consistent. Um, But the writer coming to town could just be like, you know what? My objective is to like have some really create some really special memories with my niece. Um, And, you know, you might notice things that make you feel sad, that make you feel freaked out for her future, that make you feel disappointed in your sister. But uh, I just don't think that it's your role to um, transform this dynamic. I, yeah, I, I think I'm probably going to be on that side, too. Um, like, you know, uh, there's just so many different shades of like if every morning for five days in a row she wears the same clothes and like. The matted hair and the diaper is sad. It, it is. Yeah. And there's just such a there's such a difference between like, you know, is it just that her mom is dropping her off in the morning? I, I, it was a little unclear if she like lives in the parent's house or just close by. Um, at, at any rate, there's like a lot of back and forth. Right. So it's it's the sort of thing that's like, is she going five days without a diaper change in a bath? Or is it just like every morning her mom drops her off after she's already soiled her diaper and like she's often in the same clothes? Um, I I think the question to always ask is like if it's an issue of health, like if she hasn't been bathed in days and she's got sores um, or or if she's like in in some sort of pain, that's a good moment to intervene and to ask questions. Um, And if and if it's more an issue of like everyone's a little running ragged, a little overwhelmed, um, and like her diaper does get changed after she gets dropped off, then that I think falls more under the category of like, look for ways that you can help. Um, Look for ways in which you can help like tidy her up or gently comb her hair or change a diaper. Um, 
but but that would be the limit, I think, in those moments. Yeah, it also made me think it could be useful to have conversations with her parents mm-hmm. while the, while the sister's not there and just try to understand a little bit more about the dynamic. Because um, I do, you know, it would be, I'm just trying, trying to picture like what it would be like to see this child who's like a member of your family and you're worried about her well-being and you're worried that everyone has developed these patterns of being conflict averse. And as a result, this kid is suffering. I mean, that's, that's a really shitty place to feel like you are when you go home to be with your family. Um, But, but I, I, it's sort of like, where are the, where are the levers where a conversation and support and pushing um, might lead to something besides defensiveness. And I think maybe it's another conversation with, uh, her mother it sounds like her father is also around. I'd be curious about that. Um, but yeah, it sounds like the conversations have mostly been with the mother. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it would be. I would be curious too to know, like, what is your father's read on the situation? To what degree is he involved? Um, certainly, I think a potential conversation that you could have with them that might not immediately like lead to tears is like. Um, and you would need to consider this and talk about this with your partner first. But like, is there anything that you could do to help? Um, that you'd be willing to do. Like, would it be helpful if you, like, you know, set up a monthly delivery of diapers um, or, uh, you know, helped subsidize a little child care or, um, you know, sent over some baby food? It, again, it may not be within um, your budget. You may not be able to. Um, but if there is something that you can either give um, or just do when you're there, just like whether it's short or long term, just to ask, what can I do to help? Um, since you have been trying this pattern for a while of, bringing up something that's wrong, um, you know, that might at least get you a little bit somewhere. And, you know, it's just hard. It's hard when there's like a question of like her mom's on her phone a lot and like could probably benefit from therapy, but like makes fun of the general idea. Like that's that's really painful. And um, if there's days when you're just like, I'm going to go take a walk or like you want to volunteer to take Anne to the park so you can get a little time away from um, your family and also spend a little time with this little girl, that might be helpful. but yeah, I, I think that's going to be your best bet. It's just a combination of looking for ways to help, um, trying to ask questions of your parents that are like gentle and open. I, I think it will be helpful for you to not bring your own history with the person who abused you into it. Um, I don't know the specifics of that situation. Um, and I, I certainly think you're right to say just because someone says they love you does not mean that everything they do is inherently loving. Um, but there's just like a certain degree to which it's not going to be helpful to you conversationally saying like, um, my sister is like the person who abused me. Um, just because it does not sound like there are enough parallels in these two situations. Like it is sad and disorienting and painful that she's on her phone a lot and ignoring her daughter. And I would certainly agree that that is neglectful and, and, and not kind, but I, I I just don't think it's going to be helpful for you to say, this is just like the person who abused me. Um, I, 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 and I want to be gentle about saying that because I don't want to make it sound like so therefore you just have to walk on eggshells to prioritize your sister's like comfort um, or you should just forget about the fact that you have been like harmed by someone who claimed that they loved you simply that I just don't think it's going to actually help anyone. Yeah, I think that like a clear way to run into like a total stone wall when you're talking to a parent, it doesn't sound like the writer has children um in her life or has 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 kids and i think that like a, a non-parent talking to a parent about parenting strategies uh critically is gonna it's gonna result in some pushback yeah yeah <laughs> but i do think thinking about the kind of the kind of like relationship you want to have with your niece as she gets older and like think about oh what would it be like if like once a week you know, for a week every summer we say come stay with us and we're going to expose you to x or like what's the kind of role what are the kinds of ways that you can get excited about thinking about being in this child's life for the long term because you are family and mm-hmm. so um think about the ways that you can express love and care consistently um because that that is that's something this kid needs that's something all of us need yeah. All right. So we're moving on to a much more low stakes uh, <laughs> problem. Uh, the subject here is lost in translation. Dear Prudence, 
I've recently joined a club at my university and sort of got accepted into one of the cliques slash squads slash what have you in our club. (laughs) And it's been nice. A lot of them are bilingual and will sometimes switch into speaking French in front of me to have a private conversation. I'm certainly not trying to insist on English as I'm bilingual myself, but it's awkward and a bit embarrassing to be thrown out of the conversation. It also doesn't help that I remember just enough of my high school French to have suspicions that they're talking about me. When I tried bringing up how awkward this made me feel, the response was, well, you could learn French. Any ideas on how to handle this? Aside from my current strategy of reinstalling a language learning app on my phone out of spite and also walking away every time they start a conversation in a language I don't understand? What club is this? <laughs> I know, they sound like a club of jerks, a what, French-speaking like, jerks. <laughs> what club is this where, like, many of them also speak French? I'm, I, I, I suppose it's a bit of a distraction, but I'm super, like, is it a yacht club? Like, <laughs> I'm thinking it's a somewhere in Canada club. Okay. Yeah. That, that helped it me helped it make sense yeah, for me. Yeah, that's certainly, certainly possible. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> you know, I... A yacht club. Do people speak French in yacht clubs? I don't know. I was thinking of, like, what are things that it associates with being, like, ritzy and kind of a snob. And, like, that's probably an unfair, you know, national assumption. But I do think of, like, people whose second language is French are often fancy. Not always. Often. Sometimes. Um, I'm basing all of this, like, basically off of, like, my perception of, like, subplots on Fraser. Just, like... (laughs) This seems like something that would happen on Fraser. Like Niles would be like, "Oh, they've accepted me," but then he'd be like, "Oh, they're speaking about me in French." Um, yeah, I mean, they sound like they're being dicks. Yeah. Uh, given that you remember enough of your high school French that you do have a general sense that they're talking about you, and given that they seem to switch immediately into French in front of you, uh. And 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 you have a kind of a clear sense that they're doing it to make you feel at the very least off kilter. You're probably right. Yeah. If there are other cliques slash squads slash what have you in this club, I I think you should spend time with those people, and um, less time trying to learn French so that you can understand the mean things these people are saying about you because it's i don't mean to like make light of this but it's just like yeah they sound like assholes i think you are correctly reading the situation um and so i think generally the the tactic to take here is just like i am not gonna stand around and like vaguely overhear insults about me in french i want to go talk to somebody who wants to speak a language i know in a friendly fashion yeah i mean the one thing that i wondered is it the writer says, when I tried to bring it up, which makes me wonder how direct was the conversation of bringing it up. Mm-hmm. And also, to me, if if it is in Montreal and they say, well, you could learn French and this is an American writer, like in, an, in a location where pe- knowing French is more of a sort of a broad, culturally accepted thing, sure. then it feels less jerky. Yeah. If you're not in Canada, however, right. find new friends. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly like, you know. It's great to learn other languages. Um, and if there were some of them who you genuinely do want to get to know better, um, uh, you could certainly continue using the language learning app and, and like ask to practice your French with them. But if like that overture is met with like more brush offs or more like, you know, jerky little asides, like pointing back at you, um, I, I would say don't don't waste your time yeah, on them. Because it does definitely sound like that the fellow members of your club are not going out of their way to make you feel included and like you are a member of this club. Right, and, and unless the club cr- is like learning to speak French, right. which is not. Um, but that is helpful to think about. Like if it is Montreal or if it is a situation where um, like it would be gen- generally considered like kind of rude um, for somebody not to learn French, um, that different rules would apply. But um, if this is somebody in the United States and... Um, they're just doing this because they're like, we went to private school and we're jerks. Um, talk to somebody else. Let them yacht off into the sunset. Yeah, yacht <laughs> off, guys. That, that's a good one. That's going to be my new kiss offline to like the super wealthy. All right. Back into bad family dynamics. All right. Our respite was oh. brief. Subject, invalidated in my relationship. Dear Prudence, I've been with my partner for 10 years. We've had ups and downs, but I've realized that I am not happy. As I've tried to explore this unhappiness and figure out why I feel this way, I've come to the conclusion that my spouse doesn't always treat me well. I have no doubt that he cares for me. It's largely due, I think, to his lack of self-confidence. And while not an excuse, it does make sense to me. 
We have different love languages and ways of dealing with things, which starts off on a difficult foot on a normal day. We recently went on a vacation with another couple. My partner quickly became drunk and grabbed my breast in front of others, even though I've expressed severe discomfort about this the one other time he's done it. He was annoyed when I chided him. Later, he got upset and told me that I had no idea where our room was, that I must be wrong about how to get there, despite not having been there themselves and became angry when I told him as much. He brought it up later, saying I was snarky about it, trying to make me feel bad for correcting him. These behaviors exist when he is not intoxicated to a lesser degree. I feel like I cannot bring issues to his attention without hearing about something I've done or the way I've handled. I handled my issue with him in the first place. I struggle with communicating my feelings already, and I generally need time to process my feelings before speaking out. Now I don't feel like I want to bring up anything at all, which leaves me feeling empty and unloved. I feel like I'm stuck, and I fantasize about living on my own and leaving, but on the flip side, I wonder if I'm overreacting and need to be better about communicating things as they come up. I want to change, but worry I'll be gaslit and that my feelings will be invalidated. How can I start this conversation with my spouse? Uh, one great way to start this conversation would be for your divorce lawyer to send him a letter. Maybe it's just that this is the time of the afternoon. I usually take a break and have some nicotine gum. <laughs> and so I'm just like not having it. But um, yeah, I, I I feel like this letter writer knows what what outcome uh, it's time for. Yeah. Um, I, I realized I'm not happy, the letter writer writes. The letter writer writes, I want a change. I fantasize about living on my own. Uh, but it ends, I worry I'll be gaslit and that my feelings will be invalidated. I think that you will be gaslit and your feelings will be invalidated. Because that's so it, what your partner does. Yeah. It's about getting to the point where you say, you can say comfortably, I'm not happy in this marriage. I want to leave this marriage. I'm taking these steps. Um, and for sure, you know, if there's part of you that wants to explore with him what it would be like to really dig in about how you communicate and when things go off the rails and wh what you're really meaning when you say we have different love languages. and, and But what I, what I read there, having done this myself, uh, I, I, his lack of self-confidence, like all these things you are trying to excuse his behavior that's made you feel – uh, worthless. Yeah. Um, Especially that's... given that the letter writer also says, you know, I, I often need time to process my feelings. I struggle with communicating my feelings. It sounds like you also in some ways lack self-confidence. And yet you do not respond to that by getting drunk and groping or assaulting your partner. And I, I, I understand that it may be hard to think of your partner as somebody who can assault you, but you've actually made it really clear that you don't like it when your partner grabs your breasts in front of other people. And he did it anyways. So, like, if that's not assault, I, I kind of don't know what is. Um, yeah. This is a guy who assaults you. Um, and Humiliates you. Yeah, and, and was annoyed when you chided him after having told him before, I really don't like it when you do this. Like, this is not, you, you want to know, like, how do I start this conversation? Because there's this implicit belief of, well, we have different love languages and he doesn't have a lot of self-confidence. And sometimes he's too drunk to really understand what we're doing. But I'm sure if I could just frame this in the right way, he wouldn't do these things if he really knew how badly it hurt you. But I think the hurting you is the point. Um I think he wants you to feel humiliated and off balance. I think he wants you to feel like he gets to decide when he wants to access your body and not the other way around. Um, I think that is the point of why he acts the way that he does. And so part of the fear is, how do I explain this in the right way, is if I explain it and he keeps doing it, it must mean that I explained it wrong because I know he's a good person who loves me and wants good things for me. I actually would go back and question whether or not he's a good person and wants good things for you. I don't think this is a case of two otherwise loving, sane, healthy people with different love languages. Frankly, I think the love languages conversation has a lot to answer for. I when do it too. Comes to it extends a lot of terrible relationships. And that's not necessarily to say that whoever wrote that book is like responsible for ways in which people misuse it. But like this is not an issue of like, Oh, you know, my partner really loves to buy me presents and I would much rather hear I love you all day or something. This is a question of I would like my desires and bodily autonomy to be respected and my partner won't do that. Um, so the problem is not that you've done a bad job explaining it. 
the problem is not that your husband is too unself-confident to get it. The problem is not that your husband is being spoken to in the wrong love language, um, which, again, like that's not a that's not a science. That's not like a thing like I, that's not to say that different people can't enjoy different things, but it does not mean that somebody is incapable of listening um, or of modifying their behavior. It doesn't mean that this person is now tracked into whatever love language they've been assigned and are you know, physically incapable of doing anything else. Um, the fact is, your husband enjoys humiliating and belittling you. And I don't think that he's going to change just because you say in a different way, this hurts me. I think he knows that it hurts you. And I think that he likes it. And I'm so sorry. Like, that's just got to feel painful and terrifying, especially like given that you're in these early stages of like, I think I don't like the way I'm being treated. I think it might be time to leave. I'm afraid if I bring it up that this is going to happen. Like, you're just cracking the door open, I think, on how much he's hurting you and on how much you want to go. And you feel like, but if if I haven't really acknowledged this fully to myself before, wouldn't it seem, you know, uh, sudden or precipitous to just leave now? Shouldn't I ease him into it? Shouldn't I, like, stay and explain and explain and explain until I feel like I'm at my absolute wit's end? And I just want you to know you don't have to do that. What you've described here is so not okay. It's so not okay. And it, it, it sounds like it only gets a little bit better when he's not drunk, which is just, again— um, you're not describing a mostly good relationship with a couple of problems that could maybe be resolved. You're describing, you know, somebody who is like repeatedly getting wasted um, and enjoys humiliating you in front of other people and who every time you try to say, I don't like this, this hurts me, can we talk about this, um, throws it back in your face with, well, you do this wrong. You didn't bring it up the right way with me, so I don't have to listen to you. Um, if only you were a different sort of person, I wouldn't have to treat you this way. And that's, um, you know, you can't argue with abuse. Like, he's determined to abuse you. And um, I think the right thing for you to do is to leave. You deserve that. I think you start uh, having... Be being a divorced person myself, I think that there's nothing um, that helped me more to conceptualize what life could look like at the end of a marriage than my first conversation with a divorce attorney, which was free. It was a free consultation. And I would just recommend making a call and see if you can do that because it helps to just understand the process and you can notice how you feel while you talk about what it would be like to divorce this person. Um, you can prepare yourself financially. You can talk through when and how you want to uh, say I've made this decision. Um, but it certainly sounds like you aren't you, you don't have to get to a place where he agrees that your marriage is over because it doesn't sound like he is in the habit of hearing what you need. Um, and so figuring out what you need in yourself to feel confident in your decision to step forward in this next passage in your life. Like, I would focus on those steps. Like, who are the people you want to make sure you have supporting you? What are the technical things you're wondering about legally? Like, what do you need? And um, get all that lined up. Um, because it sounds like you do. You you have tentatively, maybe out loud, it's a whisper, but it sounds like you are ready to leave this marriage. Yeah. And you just say that you fantasize about living on your own and leaving. And that on the other side of that, you wonder if you're overreacting. You're not overreacting. Um, you have a partner who makes you feel bad every time you say, I don't like being treated this way. Um, and you worry that you aren't good enough about communicating things as they come up like you owe your husband like a reminder that abuse and assault are not okay like a certain number of times before you get to leave and i'll just say like getting to leave your partner is not like a part of monopoly that you have to like buy enough property on park place <laughs> first in order to get to that's a good point do you know what, like yeah. i think sometimes it feels like especially i fought for this marriage you like feel like you have to prove to yourself that you are you are a an honorable divorcee like right. that you somehow put in enough suffering um, but yeah, I think it can be hard too to sometimes come to the realization that like, if something is just like clearly and on its face, assault or abuse, um, if I didn't say at the time that this isn't okay, then of course the other person couldn't have known that it wasn't okay. And that's just not true. Like it's everybody's responsibility, um, to not commit abuse and assault. Um, and even if, you know, he harmed or assaulted you at some point and you did not say until later or at all that wasn't okay. I didn't like it. It still wasn't okay. 
and you still get to not like it. Um, and you get to say it has destroyed the love and trust that I had in this relationship and I'm leaving. Um, you know, people don't get like a, a certain number of like, you get to fix this abuse card, like whether or not he could potentially become a different kind of person and make serious amends and lead a different kind of life someday, that remains to be seen. Like I do ultimately have hope for that, um, for him and for lots of other people who have committed assault and abuse. But the question of whether or not he gets to do that work in this marriage with you, the person he has been abusing until up until today, that's just a very clear no. Whatever work is going to be in his future, he's going to need to figure that out. Um, and it's not your job um, to teach him. So you get to leave, you get to leave as soon as you want, as soon as you're able, as soon as you feel safe. I think you should make that call and good luck. All right. So this, uh, this next one is different. It's a good <laughs> one. Just a little shoulder <laughs> shimmy. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm right there. It's about whether or not somebody is being too prudish, which I always, you know, it's always great to get a name check in the column. I think it's my turn, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, subject is sex obsessed sister. Dear Prudence, my older sister was a late bloomer. However, in her mid-30s, she now has a very active and kinky sex life. I know this because it's kind of all she talks about. She leaves sex toys lying around the house. She goes topless whenever possible. She talks about her kinks, her habits, and proclivities no matter who is around, and posts about them on Facebook daily where family and coworkers can see. She's always giving sex-related gifts like explicit erotica and art to people who have expressed no desire for them. I am not a prude, but this has to be crossing the boundaries of acceptable behavior, right? How can I convince her that she should ask before bearing her breasts to people or discussing her latest orgy instead of putting the onus on them to state their discomfort without making her feel shamed for her sexuality? Oh, letter writer. Sisters. Oh, I, boy, I, I don't know if the letter writer is, but it, yeah. I <laughs> oh, right. Whether or not they are a sister or, or, sister or a brother. brother or a non-binary sibling. Yeah. Yes. We don't know. But the sister in question is certainly being a real sister. <laughs> um, so I, I, I feel, a co- I mean, I, I definitely have friends uh, way more on the side of like, let me tell you about my latest orgy side of things. And I also have friends who are more on the side of like, you don't need to know if I've ever had sex. Um, life is, as, as we enjoy saying, sometimes a rich, rich tapestry. Um, and I think there's a couple of things that you do have a, a stake in saying to her. And there's a couple of things that I think are going to be helpful to just let go. So like whether or not your sister enjoys posting about her sex life on Facebook, um, if that makes you uncomfortable, go ahead and mute her. Go ahead and unfriend her if you want. Like you can say something against you. I love you. I just don't know want to know anything about your sex life. And so, um, that's the choice I made for myself. Like, uh, rather than telling her what she should or shouldn't do um, on on her social media page, just go ahead and set it so that you don't have to see it ever. You know, I the thing that I thought was really intriguing is my older sister was a late bloomer. However, now in her mid thirties, she has a very active and kinky sex life. Like, to me, I think that there could be there's two things that need to happen here. The letter writer needs to express to the sister. These are things that make me uncomfortable. Figuring out how to use I statements oh, yeah. uh, with our siblings, that is always helpful. But I also wonder, like, what it would be like if you said to your sister, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on for you? Like, like I want to understand, like, you know, what's, what it's, what's it been like? You know, it seemed like when you're 20s, you had this certain life or, you know, you're like, just tell me about it. Because I think that maybe understanding a little bit about what it has been like for your sister to discover her sensuality and her body and kind of uh, be willing to flout, um, you know, conventions about what's appropriate on Facebook or not. Like, I just think it could could help you with some of your judgment to understand some of that backstory. That's not to say that you need to accept it. Um, but I, I just think a conversation about, like, tell me a little bit more. Like, it could could uh could just bring you a little closer. I would also like to give the letter writer permission to not do that. Um, <laughs> just, to, you know, as somebody, I love both my siblings very, very dearly and certainly want them to flourish in all the areas of their life, um, uh, including uh, to whatever extent flourishing would look like active. I'm, I, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say, like, I love both of my siblings. I want them to be well and happy. Um I would not want to, even if one of them did feel like they were going through a real beautiful sexual awakening, I would not want to know any details. Huh. Um, I would say that's fantastic. 
never tell me about that. <laughs> we, you know what? I, like we, we are siblings. I don't. Um, I just don't want to share that part of their lives. Although I can wish them joy from afar. Um, and I think too, especially like if it's a sibling who already has a problem with oversharing, saying I'd love to know more. I, I just worry that the sister's going to say like, "Great, here are some pictures from my last orgy." Like. Certainly, if you were to try to have that conversation, I think it would be important to stress, like, I don't want to know the details, but I want to know, like, what feels so important to you about sharing this all the time. And again, feel very free if the idea of having such a conversation makes you want to run and hide forever, as it would me, to not have it. Um, but yes, I love the idea of, like, the I statements. Like, don't worry about... um Because there is, right, like, a lot wrapped up in this, right? Like, there's the degree to which, like... Um, people who get a lot of joy out of a certain sexual awakening can sometimes go way too far on the other side of like, because this brought me joy, it will bring everyone else joy. And we should all have the same like uninhibited relationship to our bodies as I do. And it's just going to be good for the world if I'm like pushing this boundary everywhere I go. Um, and that can be a lot of energy. Not everyone who doesn't want to take off their shirt everywhere is deeply repressed. Um, I, Pull quote. You know, like I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to be the prude in this episode and say, like, I think in general, shirtedness is like often a good thing um, in society. I'm glad we wear clothes. That's, you know, yeah. I'm willing to go out on that limb. I don't know why. Like, I looked to my producer for like support in that moment. Like, I'm not. That's not weird, right? Um, Taking a stand for shirtedness. Yeah. So whether or not it like pushes the boundaries of acceptable behavior kind of depends. If you're taking off your shirt at work, that may uh, be pushing some boundaries if you're doing it among people who often do or like um, in a group that's trying to like, you know, push for like similar standards between like men and women when it comes to shirtlessness. It may not be so boundary pushing, but to just really stick with like, I don't want to get presents about sex. That's not the kind of relationship I want to have with you. I also hope that like as excited as you are about all these things that you check in with other people to make sure that they are comfortable with the same thing because um, sometimes it can be difficult to remember that something that brings us a lot of joy um, is maybe a little more personal or difficult for somebody else to talk about and I hope that you will bear that in mind. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's going to be the tone you'll want to strike. And if you don't want to hear about her kinks, my God, that is fine. Good Lord. Yeah, I love you very much. I want to talk about almost any aspect of our lives. I just don't want to hear about your kinks as your sibling. That's just a sibling thing. I wish you total joy and freedom. I hope you have a million friends to talk to about this, but never me. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's totally fine to, like, love your sibling and say this is a part of your life. Social media is not a place where I'm going to feel connected to you if you're a part of a community where, like, you're sharing about things that are uh, kinky in a ways that I don't have in my, you know, typically you don't have in your in your Facebook feed or in your your social feeds. So it's totally fine to say I'm muting that part and we're going to connect on other things. Yeah. And when it comes to stuff like, you know, letting her know like, hey, if you're going to have sex toys laying around the house, will you please let me know so I can make my own decisions about whether or not I'm going to come by? Um, uh, I, again, I think that strikes a balance between like, you're not saying like you're terrible and you should feel bad about your body. Um, but you're also saying like, I have a comfort level that I would like to be respected as well. And like your freedom kind of ends when it bumps up against me learning things I did not seek to know about my own sibling's sexual life. Um, you know, I'm just so curious. I just want to know the sister's backstory. I, <laughs> I want to know what happened. I, <laughs> you know, I, I think that kind of classic just like, oh, I enjoy this thing now. The entire world should also become my level of comfort about this. And, um, you know, it's it's just um, listening to other people and respecting their comfort level, especially when it comes to talking about sex, is I think just really important. Um, and it's also one of those things, I don't want to do this too often, but like, I also think that there's probably a lot of, like, if this were a brother suddenly doing this, people would be responding in a really different way. And I think it can be kind of important in this moment to ask like, hey, this is still about sex and consent. Um, just because she's a woman does not mean we should overlook moments when she's kind of steamrolling. And again, I don't want to say like, she is like doing harm to people, but I just think it's really important to say like, if you, you know, um, talk very detailedly about your sex life around people who are family members who have not said like I feel comfortable doing this like you need to listen you gotta pay attention and don't give people explicit erotica unless you're 
pretty sure they want it. I, I, I have one time in my life had to say, I love you very much to someone, not a sibling, but please do not give me erotica for a present. And um, I, I sure didn't like it. <laughs> but you stated your boundary. I did. I did. I didn't think I would have to. I thought it was, I thought it was sort of a given that, like, given that I had never given this person uh, erotica, I sort of assumed we were on the same page. But I guess it was good to get clarity there. Good luck, letter writer. And, you know, I hope your sister is able to find a way to, like, celebrate and be really happy about her own body and her own sexuality um, in a way that can also, you know, take the temperature of the room. Um, And generally speaking, it does seem like if male shirtlessness is fine in certain places, then female shirtlessness should also be fine. You can defend your your shirtedness position. Yeah, okay. You can let that stand. I I think in places where I think there should be like um, more consistent rules about where is and isn't acceptable. Like I'm fine that male shirtlessness is okay on the beach, but not say like at a TED talk, unless your (laughs) TED talk is look at my male chest. (laughs) My TED talk with 2020 forthcoming. but it's fine that shirtlessness in general is restricted to certain times and places. Somehow I believe there's already been a shirtless man on the TED Talk stage I at am some point. <laughs> also sure. All right, we got to move on. We've been on this one for too long. Uh, I think it's your turn it's, to read a letter. Okay. Subject. I've been chewing this over. Dear Prudence, I work in an open office where we all tend to eat lunch at our desks and kind of shout out questions when we need to. The person who sits closest to me is a grazer, snacks throughout the day on crunchy foods like apples, carrots, nuts, and granola bars. Prudy, I can't stand the noise. I'm uncomfortable addressing it with them because we're peers and because eating at our desks is something we all do, and I don't want this person to feel singled out like they have to change their habits. Most of all, I think there may be some disordered eating issues at play. And I don't want to make them self-conscious or do anything that might trigger them. I don't like working with headphones because it means people can't get my attention when they have a question. But I've started putting my headphones on when this person starts snacking. This is starting to feel conspicuous and also doesn't always completely drown out the noise. Any suggestions or do I have to suck it up and get over my probably too strong aversion to hearing other people's mouth noises? Somehow, for this question, I couldn't imagine a way that, like, having a sincere, earnest conversation about chewing sounds was going to end up in the best. I don't know. I, somehow, I feel like this this is more of a workaround than a direct confrontation situation. I think especially because everyone eats at their desk already, it is a little tricky to say. The way you eat, in particular. Yeah. I, I also wonder, like... To what degree your assumption that this particular coworker may have some sort of eating disorder is playing into your discomfort around the sounds that they make when they're eating? I think that's worth kind of asking yourself some uncomfortable questions about. Like, you know, did the discomfort come first or did the belief that this coworker has an eating disorder come first? And, um, you know, is it possible that I am more aware of the sounds they make while eating because I've kind of made it my business to determine whether or not they've got an eating disorder? Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know, but that, that it feels like you mentioned that for a reason and, and not just to say, oh, I shouldn't bring it up because I think they might have an eating disorder. I think that's on your mind, at least in part, because um, that's part of what's producing the discomfort. And I think, I mean, I do think that there are certainly people, like, people have different uh, comfort levels with, like, mouth sounds and chewing sounds. And certainly, like, it could be one of your things that, like, hearing crunchy sounds you find, like, distracting and disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think the headphones solution for now is, is the way to go. And I think when you say, I, I feel like it's starting to feel conspicuous, I don't know what kind of field you work in or, or whether there are headphones around. There are headphones around all the time in, in my work environments because I work in radio. So I'm like, it's not conspicuous at all. Um, but I think uh, just figuring out like when you're like, ugh, I can't stand this sound right now. Like that's when you take your walk to the to fill up your tea or that's when you um, take a break with your headphones or that's when you do something like figure out ways to to try to redirect your focus on your coworkers chewing yeah. um, certainly the real problem here is the goddamn open plan office exactly like <laughs> 
fucking death to the open plan office. Can we all just agree it's not a good idea? And also eating at desks. Right. Like I the, feel that's also a problem. The problem is institutional, which is that your company is just like, hey, you all enjoy being in a bullpen, right? And like shouting at each other whenever and you have questions. And not taking lunch breaks. Yeah. And like eating through lunch um, while working. Like some of it is just the your company has engineered a situation where you are all going to be like uncomfortable and impinged upon and that is something that your company should address. So I'm sorry about that. But yeah, I think generally speaking, if you feel like there's not really a way to bring it up without A, either kind of invoking the possibility of disordered eating or without making them feel really singled out um, over something that you all already do, then you should probably listen to that. And um, yeah, like Anna said, either put on the headphones or take a stroll um, when the chewing starts up. Um, even if it is an imperfect solution, I don't think there is going to be a perfect solution short of offices with doors. Um, Changing your career. <laughs> if, you know, if either like you put on your headphones and it gets so conspicuous that this coworker asks you about it, you can certainly say, ah, you know, I didn't want to mention it because I know we all eat at our desks, but sometimes with crunchier foods, um, it, it gets a little distracting. So um, I, I, I thought I'd put on some headphones. You can say that. Um, or... If there is a like I would say if there is another place to eat, you could potentially say, hey, I realize this may not always be possible. And I know we all eat at our desks, but sometimes when you're crunching uh, on something or when you're snacking on something really crunchy, it's a little distracting. Um, would it ever be possible to take that in the break room um, when you can? If there's nowhere else to eat, uh, again, you know, you can certainly say like sometimes it's distracting, but like short of. The problem is the company. Once again, the problem is the company, and there's only so much that either of you can do in this situation. You just reminded me of, I remember a moment when I was working in a newsroom um, where I, the person who sat across the cubicle from me stood up, God bless her, and said, can you please stop smacking your gum? Like, it's, and I, I was, it's something that I do so thoughtlessly when I'm chewing gum is like blowing bubbles and doing, making mm -hmm. a lot of sound. And, and I was like, oh, so there, there can be a way to be like, I think, you know, if there's like some mindless eating, like just sort of like bringing, bringing intentionality into how you're eating and make the sounds that you're making. I think there's a way to do it. If, I don't if know if that standing up and saying, my God, you <laughs> chew like a barn animal. I mean, it made the point. I was like, oh, I am making a lot of sound and I'm not aware at all that I, there are people surrounding me. Um, but uh, I hadn't thought about that I just sounded like a barn animal. God, all I, I had think about now is nicotine gum. <laughs> Sorry to bring up it's fine. It's, you know, 16-year-old me's fault for asking you know, Bill to teach me how to smoke in a driveway <laughs> at a party. <sighs> I'm shaking my fist at my past self. Oh, well, what are you going to do? All right, this last one. Oh, it's a real, this is going to be a real opportunity for someone to reinvestigate some of their own assumptions. Um, the subject line is racial preference with children. Dear Prudence, I like kids and enjoy babysitting occasionally for extra cash. Because I find them cuter and less difficult than many white children raised by white parents, I greatly prefer Asian children. I am a white woman. Would it be inappropriate for me to market my service in typically Asian places in my community? Would that be extremely tacky and unwelcome, or is it worth trying? I don't want to be looked down on as one of those white people who try, who sort of try on elements of a culture for fun or novelty. I gotta tell you, letter writer, if your goal is not to be one of those white people who sort of try on elements of a culture for fun or novelty, then I would really encourage you to re-examine your belief that Asian children are cuter and more docile as a group. Um, maybe just reread that sentence to yourself a couple of times. Say it out loud. Imagine saying it in front of people and think about how you would feel. Think about how they might feel. If it doesn't feel like the kind of sentence you'd feel like pretty proud of, um, you know, like putting your full name to, um, it might be worth um, reinvestigating why you have some of those assumptions um, and what other groups of children you might be making, uh, you know, uh, compensatory assumptions about um, in addition to white and Asian children. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I don't recommend that you, like, seek out Asian neighborhoods to blanket with your babysitting flyers. Um, you are certainly free to do so if you want to disregard my advice. My guess is, uh, you know, nobody's going to start tearing your flyers down. Um, you may get some people who call you. Um, you may get ignored. Um, you may have some people think it's a little weird. Some people may not notice it. Um, I, I, I can't promise you what the outcome would be, but I think generally speaking, if you make decisions um, or organize your life around the belief that as a group, Asian children are cuter um, and and easier to direct than white children, um, you're going to harm people in your life. Um, you are going to, uh, you know, be a propulsive force behind institutional racism rather than attempting to do anything about it. And that will not be good for you and that will not be good for the world. I also think that like babysitting, I mean, I have a parent. I am a, I am a parent. I also have a parent. But I am a parent and I think a lot about like race and child care and like, wow, is it a like fraught and um, not talked enough, talked about enough thing. And I just think if you're babysitting, I don't know, like think of it like it's kind of boring to be to, to say that you only want to babysit Asian kids because they're less difficult. Like they part of the joy, if you can like reframe like part of the joy of being a stand in caregiver for families and hanging out with kids is getting to like be around kids and learn about kids. And um, and I just think it's a limiting thing. Uh, to decide that you only want to be around Asian kids who, in your experience, um, give you an easier time. Like, I don't know. And I think especially that particular attitude um, is one that has done a lot of damage in in various communities. And so I think, uh, you know, another good thing for you to do, letter writers, like do a little more learning about the model minority myth um, and the ways in which attitudes just like yours have contributed to uh, very real impediments um, to various like communities in this country. Um, I, I think that that would be worth learning a little bit more about, like asking yourself, why do I have this assumption about these children? Where does that come from? That doesn't come from a vacuum. That doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, other people, other people with a lot of power have shared this belief, um, and that's resulted in a, a lot of pain and a lot of challenges for other people. So I, I think this is definitely worth um, taking a look at. This is kind of, I don't normally like plug books on the show, but uh, my friend Nicole Chung recently wrote a book um, called All You Can Ever Know, which was exactly about her experience um, as a transracial adoptee being adopted by white parents. Um, and oftentimes the ways in which she felt like her own parents were totally unprepared um, to talk with her honestly about race um, because of a number of assumptions that uh, people had about her and other kids like her. Um, that's certainly a book that might be worth checking out. Um, there's a lot of others that have been written about the model minority myth. Um, again, I think that's going to be really good. Um, for right now, you know, if you need to babysit for extra cash, babysit for extra cash. Um, do not go out of your way to, like, harangue Asian people in your community because you would like to babysit their children the most. Um, yeah, sit with some of this. Reinvestigate some of this. Um I also think the last sentence in your letter is interesting. I don't want to be looked down on as one of those white people. It's not like you're not saying I don't want to be. You're saying I don't want to be perceived as being a white person who's doing this thing that we know is problematic. So I would think, like, what am I doing that could be potentially problematic? Um, and think less about how you are perceived and in, in how you're orienting yourself towards other white people and other people of color and think more about what your actual relationships are with these people. Yeah. So good luck with that one. That will probably be the work of a lifetime. Um, I encourage you not to harm children with the beliefs that you carry around with you. Um, I worry especially about were you to babysit for uh, like an Asian American child who was difficult, um, ways in which you would try to wield their own ethnicity at them in order to get them to comply. Um, and I really hope you don't do that. I really want you to not cause harm in that particular fashion. Anna, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good questions. Thank you so much for coming so prepared um, and for 
reminding me about gum. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Life is a whole deal. Um, don't let your kids smoke. You won't be able to control that. I know. <sighs> I know. I do wonder about pot here in the great state of California. What will be my pot parenting strategy? Oh, man. I got nothing. I have no kids. I got nothing for you. Um, but I hope that your child has wonderful, healthy lungs and makes choices. And that, like, has air to breathe, right? Like, at a certain point. That's true. Um, I'm That's going to that. be the most important thing is, like, <laughs> will there be air? We don't know. Maybe I should just start smoking again. No, that's not the right response to catastrophic climate change is to just assume that I should start smoking cigarettes again. Thank you for coming on the show. I need a cup of tea. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location and at your request. You can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.